Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed. The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So I would like to start this week's episode by sharing this very interesting article I recently read in the New York Times on the heels of New York Fashion Week. The author provides a rather harsh and surprising criticism of the American Fashion Collections, April, stating, quote, I am within the lines of conservatism when I say that the vast majority of the designs failed because of the French influence on our fashions. It was very pathetic in some cases, the extent to which the worst of the standards of late set in the Paris fashions had influenced designers whose work and technical aspects showed marked talent. All right, dress listeners, you may have already guessed this, but this is not a recent New York Times article, but actually one from over 100 years ago. It's actually from the year 1913. And the commentator was being critical of not just any designs, but specifically of those entered into the first ever national American fashion design contest. And it's hard to imagine a time when when designers such as Marc Jacobs or Ralph Lauren or Diane von Furstenberg weren't necessarily household names. But in the first decades of the 20th century, you would actually be quite hard-pressed to find a very celebrated, renowned American designer who basically was a household name. Yeah, nearly impossible, I would argue. And so great was the influence of the French haute couture industry on American fashion design at this time that the then editor-in-chief of Ladies Home Journal, Edward Bach, partnered with the New York Times in 1912 to create this nationwide contest with the express purpose of bringing a new generation of American design talent to the fore for the first time in history. Well, over 100 years later, the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art has just opened their very brand new exhibition dedicated entirely to the sheer breadth of American fashion talent. And it is entitled, In America, A Lexicon of Fashion. And we could think of no better way to celebrate than dedicating an entire episode to looking at the rise of the American designer during the 20th century. So Dress Detective Hats on April and Dress Listeners, we are actually headed back to 1909, not 1913. This was the year that Edward Bach, as mentioned, uh, the outspoken editor of Ladies Home Journal, first began promoting his, quote, American Fashions for American Women movement in the pages of the magazines. After crediting American women as being, quote, the originator of some of the most popular fashions adopted and worn by her sex, end quote, and he includes these innovations as the shirtwaist and the tailor-made suit, he then called on women to rid themselves of their dependence on foreign influences in fashion because, quote, the time has come when of her own initiative, by her own ingenuity, she can begin to place herself on a par with the originators of fashion in any other part of the world. Bach proudly shares that in the next issue of the magazine will appear for the very first time, quote, 
In any American fashion or any general magazine, the first purely American fashion department with every style of American origin adapted to the American woman, end quote. So I was just going to say, you know, like sometimes now we kind of think of Ladies Home Journal as kind of being like very staid and, and very conservative. But at this time, this was rather progressive, right, Cass? Yeah, I mean, ahead of its time, yes, but also perhaps politically motivated. Bach's campaign was actually repeatedly underscored by his overt detaste for the quote-unquote freakish and indecent fashions from Paris. And these are words that he (laughs) repeatedly used. I mean, obviously, people loved French fashion for a variety of reasons. We're not discounting that in any way. But he constantly was calling it freakish and indecent because, you know, these words are no doubt imbued with this nationalist, sentiment that is similarly mirrored in politics at this time. So despite Bach's political bent, his feelings about the state of the American fashion industry were nonetheless relevant as America's unwavering dependence on Paris fashion was really undeniable. Yeah, and all the era's fashion tastemakers from celebrities to the American nouveau riche really kind of perpetuated this French legend in their clothing choices. And this is supported by the fact that twice a year, buyers from America descended on Paris for the spring and the fall openings of the Haute Couture houses. And they basically, you know, the magazines faithfully reported back to America everything that was happening there in incredible detail. It was printed in newspapers and magazines all across the country. And the French designs were then kind of from that point forward, adapted and interpreted for the American market at all price points, from ready-to-wear to even custom made-to-order clothing. Yeah, and I think we've talked about this before on the show, but this dissemination of fashion happened in multiple ways. Some buyers would actually buy an haute couture piece with the couture house's permission to reproduce it in America. That way they had all of the details, you know, in their hands. Others just bought toiles or muslin mock-ups of the designs to then copy in America. And haute couture houses like Poiré, for instance, although they would never have admitted it, (laughs) say in France... (laughs) <laughs> they also licensed their names to a whole host of products from cigarettes to corsets. Yeah, and actually, I have actually seen um, Poiret watches at, at some point on eBay that I ran into at one point. <laughs> so, And that's just talking about the legal side of selling French fashions. You know, because on many occasions, the designer's works were just simply knocked off. They were copied with without permission. And there's this great story of Poiré coming to America, touring all the American department stores, only to discover that his name was splattered across a whole bevy of unauthorized merchandise. And he was appalled. He was furious. He came back to France and basically started a movement within the haute couture syndicale to combat knockoffs, to come back copying. Was it successful? Perhaps not. Because people really, really desired French fashions. And and this just reminds me that, of course, and that we've been saying this for four years now, we need to have Ariel Alaya come on the show to join us to talk about yes, counterfeits <laughs> and copying because this is her her area of specialty and also the law as well. So yeah, absolutely. Ariel, I'm going to DM you after we get done recording. <laughs> Or just text you, actually. I don't need to DM you. (laughs) 
Yeah, so this desire for French fashion, right? America's love affair, I would actually say, with French fashion was something fashion designer Elizabeth Haas, American fashion designer Elizabeth Haas, famously referred to as something April actually referenced earlier, the quote-unquote French legend. So, quote, all beautiful clothes are made in the houses of the French couturiers, and all women want those clothes. And the result of the perpetuation of this French legend by American manufacturers, department stores, but also the country's leading fashion magazines, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, was the relegation of the American designer to this place of anonymity. And their original contributions to fashion was just simply deemed unworthy of recognition. Yeah, and that is not to say that there were not American fashion designers, because there certainly were. Just look at one of our earliest episodes that we did, Cass, on Elizabeth Keckley. Keckley was a formerly enslaved woman who bought her freedom through her design career, and she became one of the premier designers in Washington, D.C., going on to eventually dress and and also befriend uh, Mary Todd Lincoln. And there's also Jesse Franklin Turner. I think that uh, Sandy Schreier and I talked a little bit about her on a recent episode. And she was made her name for herself designing a New York City starting in the 19-teens. There was even for a brief time select fashion houses in France in the early 20th century that were headed by Americans, including uh, Maison Marjolaine. So regardless of their success, most American creators of clothing at this time kind of depended on the cachet of France as a cultural mecca of the world to sell their clothing. So, you know, France had really been honing these skills at fashion design and really supporting them as a governmental initiative since Louis XIV. So we've talked about this many times on the show because the Sun King really made fashion a matter of national importance. Edward Bach was perhaps the most visible and vocal supporter of the American fashion movement, saying, quote, the American woman has told me in no uncertain terms that she wants to get through with Paris and that she wants American fashions. And he wrote this in the New York Times, one of only several articles on the subject published in 1912. Reader Abram Mayers actually wrote a retort to Bach's claims that appeared not even one week later. He said, let's not condemn the Paris fashion since we use them and must have them. And even when we have American styles for American women, we can always learn and should give Paris credit if it so deserves and stop condemning it for supplying us with ideas, end quote. Words written not entirely without motivation. Mayer was the owner of a New York import house, which means, you know, he had, there was this understandable consternation that a rejection of Paris fashion would disrupt his part in this multi-million, if not billion dollar industry that was dependent on, you know, the cachet of Parisian design. Yeah, yeah. I, as soon as you read that quote, I was like, oh, I know what's up here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he has some sort of financial stake in this claim. So, But Bach was basically unfazed by Mayer's retort and in 1913 collaborated with the New York Times to present the first ever nationwide American fashion design contest. Quote, it is time for the American woman who is just as clever as the French woman to realize that not only can she design her own clothes, but she can do better, end quote. And this was a challenge that was accepted by thousands of women across the United States. 
And the New York Times' highly anticipated announcement of the winners was accompanied by a five-page article that heralded the beginning of American fashion design. Quote, American fashions as a formal, recognized contestant with Paris fashions for the patronage of American women may be said to originate today with this publication, a new war of independence in which no doubt American enterprise, adaptability, and taste will find effective means of adequate self-expression. All right, here we go. (laughs) Yes, American fashion, here we go. So originality was a key factor in choosing the winning designs, many of which quote-unquote failed because as we've already read at the top of this episode, the designs were too influenced by quote, freakish French fashions. Uh, First, second, and third place awards were given for the best designs in three categories, hats, afternoon dresses, and evening dresses. The winner of first prize in evening attire was none other than Ethel Traphagen, who adopted a painting by James Abbott McNeil Whistler into a dress, and she received reverent praises from the judges. The silk chiffon material of the dress combined with its long train and this sort of columnar, uncorseted silhouette were all a reflection of contemporary fashion trends. But the true originality lay in Traphagen's artistic inspiration. So like Whistler, Traphagen sought to emphasize the sort of tonal harmony of her piece and transformed the artist's work, Nocturne, Blue and Gold, Old Battersea Bridge, so that's the name of the piece, which in and of itself was already a series of tonal deconstructions in the painting. Well, Traphagen turned this into a series of colors and fabrics in the garment that was, quote, an expression of the atmosphere of evening. And it had a little bit of a Japanese influence to it. Um, You know, it had kind of flowing kimono-like sleeves and an obi-style sash, which, you know, even further underscored Traphagen's alignment with Whistler's aesthetic, which also similarly drew from uh, Japanese sources. Traphagen, as many of you might remember, was a subject of my master's thesis. She was this well-respected fashion educator and authority who'd go on to found one of America's first fashion schools exclusively dedicated to training fashion industry professionals, the Traphagen School of Fashion, which opened in 1923. And Traphagen just envisioned this self-reliant American fashion system independent of foreign influence and believed the key to original design, quote-unquote original design, because we're going to get into that later. (laughs) (laughs) It was found in this methodology that was known as, or she and Edward Bach actually called design by adaptation. So basically designers found, again, quote unquote, original design by adapting from artistic and historical sources in the world's visual repertoire. So taking the world (laughs) as places you can find your influence. And this is obviously reflected in her New York Times winning design. Bach similarly espoused this design by adaptation method as the only way in which American designers could be free from French influence. And he went so far to claim in a New York Times article that, quote, Paris has never, in all its history, created a single fashion. It has always adapted. It adapts from every source. And this is what exactly American fashion must be, end quote. So Bach and Ethel Traphagen were clearly on the same page. So it comes as little surprise that she was actually hired later to work at Ladies Home Journal 
And her designs for Lady Tome Journal, which were drawn by Abby E. Underwood, uh, they were actually featured in the magazine's November 1913 and January 1914 issues under the label The American Indian Dress. Yes, that is correct. The American Indian Dress. And what's even worse is under it, it says... The Ladies Home Journal's American Designed Fashion. So we just want to pause here because we cannot and should not lose sight of the fact that American commodification of the culture and intellectual properties, what we would call cultural appropriation today, was part and parcel to the American fashion designer's quest for visibility and autonomy. So to be original, both Trapagan and Bach were basically encouraging, not basically, they were encouraging pilfering from the aesthetic properties of any number of indigenous peoples, African peoples, basically the world's your oyster, right? Choose Mm -hmm. where you, you know, choose anything you want. I make it distinctly, quote unquote, American. Trapagan actually built an entire school based on this concept of design by adaptation. And she provided her students with a museum collection that was comprised of clothing and accessories compiled from her and her husband's world travels. So she offered all of these things up as original design inspiration to her students. Yeah. Initially, the momentum created by this New York Times fashion contest had an identifiable effect on the American fashion industry. Dress Magazine, which in a nerdy sort of way would later become Vanity Fair. There you go. Um, But uh, Dress Magazine featured, quote, original costumes designed by Miss Ethel Traphagen in their 1912 issue for the very first time. While Bach continued to promote American designers— And these designers included Rowena Rice, Mary Anderson, and Eleanor Hoyt Brannard. And with the outbreak of World War I in 1914, initially, this seemed to secure these American designers' continued rise. But due to scarcity of materials and loss of clientele, many of the prestigious Parisian couture clients were forced to function on limited operations, while other houses closed entirely because their head designers were called to join the French armed forces. And this gave American fashion designers at this really early point a little bit of a support, a little bit of a platform. So the owner of the Wanamaker department store, which is an American department store dependent on Parisian fashion, recalled this reportedly dramatic experience while he was in France attempting to procure garments from the famous French fashion designer, Paul Paré, at the onset of the war. And Wanamaker found the designer surrounded by weeping women in his atelier and their exchange, April and I will briefly enact here because you know how much I love to do this to April. <laughs> April will be Paré who told Wanamaker that I am going to join my regiment. France needs men today, not artists. But have you nothing ready? Wanamaker cried. No models that I might show in America? No, the atelier is closed. It shall remain closed with nothing touching until I return, if I do return. (laughs) And Wanamaker recalled, I passed out silently. (laughs) Wow. Um, At the famous Rue de la Paix, House of Worth, I was greeted by Jean and Jacques Worth, also in uniform. They were taking a last look at one of the gowns just finished. So all of this conversation back and forth that Cass and I were doing was uh, published in newspapers across the country because this was a big deal. Yeah, it was a huge deal. And we just want to say, too, that we all know Paré did not see any sort of battlefield <laughs> during World War One. 
Neither did he stop designing because he started working on a ready-to-wear collection intended for America. And yes, he did. Very rare examples of it out there. Yes, yes, yes. So it was reports like Wanamaker's that added impetus to box American fashion movement because this was America's chance to finally get its foot in the door and prove itself capable of operating without Paris influence. You know, we were supposed to be, America was supposed to be cut off from Paris. We were not going to be getting all of these designs because the fashion houses were closed. And the American fashion movement was also aided by the first fashion show dedicated to American designers put on by none other than Vogue magazine in 1914. Quote, with Paris sorely stricken and all possible European successors in like plight, wrote Vogue magazine, New York has thrust upon it the honor of designing fashions. And so in the manner of Paris will hold its first great fashion opening. It's so crazy to think about like the first time American fashions being celebrated. It's it's right. not that long ago. A hundred years, really. Yeah, so um, this event was called the Fashion Fete, and it was the first large-scale exhibition of American fashion design in the country, exclusively featuring New York fashion designers. Yes, and notice how they're still kind of using the French cachet to promote (laughs) this American (laughs) show, you know. So regardless, uh, the Fashion Fete premiered to great promise, but the war's threat against Paris fashion was only temporary. Vogue's and the American consumer's enthusiasm for homegrown American design talent proved rather short-lived. And the magazine staged a second fashion fete in November of 1915, but this time it was in support of the Paris haute couturiers, whose profession was in peril at this point. And there were 11 couturiers of the distinguished Chambre Syndicale, which contributed models to this fashion show. Yeah, and I just want to say, too, that the French haute couturiers were so pissed at Vogue for staging that American fashion fete because it did. It instantly put their domination of fashion in peril and their very livelihoods. Mm-hmm. And um, there were a lot of haute couture houses that did not close during World War One. It was not as it was feared to be, as it would, we'll talk about in a minute, about World War II. They were still able to transmit their designs to America during the war. Throughout the war, basically, Americans could still secure their beloved French fashions. And at this early point, the American Fashion for American Women movement ended as quickly as it had begun. Or did it? Right. That is the question. So an American fashion design movement would once again gain steam in the 1930s. 1930, for instance, saw the establishment of the Fashion Group, an organization that still exists today, which was founded on the belief that, quote, fashion needed a forum, a stage, and a force to express and enhance a widening interest in clothes, especially American clothes. Among the group's earliest and best-known members were Edna Woolman Chase, then editor-in-chief of Vogue, and Dorothy Shaver, vice president and future future president of Lord & Taylor. In 1932, Dorothy spearheaded Lord & Taylor's own American Fashions for American Women campaign. And according to Shaver, the idea for the campaign in the late 1920s came when she realized that America's mass-manufactured ready-to-wear had, quote, cheapened the Paris label and that the Paris Couture originals were knocked off in America at all price points. So she also believed that American women's dependence on Paris made them wear unbecoming clothes, those are her words, a behavior which she also called, quote, stupid, unimaginative, and almost childish. 
Tell us what you really think. (laughs) Well, a lot of people at this time (laughs) had a problem with Parisian fashion. And one of their complaints was that it made American women unbecoming, which again, I think all of these are just kind of, you know, ways that people reinforce their vision for what they wanted American fashion to be. Obviously, we all know French fashion was amazing at this time. Um, The campaign, Dorothy Shaver's campaign debuted in April of 1932 and featured, quote, three young American designers, Edith Marie Roos, Annette Simpson, and Elizabeth Hawes. Yay! And by by featuring (laughs) the designers' names as part of the campaign, Shaver really attempted to eschew this industry-wide standard that omitted the names of designers for ready-to-wear manufacturers, And by doing this, she simultaneously elevated American designers to a status only previously held by famous Parisian haute couturiers. And the campaign was a huge success. And in 1933, Vogue recognized Shaver as someone who had, quote, done more than anyone to support the younger American designers and bring them to public attention. Vogue went on to proclaim that, quote, the American designer is more important today than ever before. And in many ways, Cass, this was actually true because in the 1930s, this witnessed the emergence of a whole new generation of American designers who ultimately kind of did become household names, um, including Elizabeth Hawes, who you guys know that I am obsessed with, um, Claire McCardell, and Valentina Bonnie Cashin, and they all made names for themselves in this industry that had hidden away its own talent in the past. So if you want to learn a little bit more about what, what is termed the American look that many of these designers that I just mentioned are credited with inventing, you could head back to, um, I think maybe season two, I think we did an episode on the American look with Rebecca Arnold. So that is out there. Yeah. And we've done actually episodes on Haas, Valentina, and Bonnie Cashin. So that leaves Claire McArdle, <laughs> which is a huge oversight. We need to correct that. <laughs> I know. Season five. Hi, Claire. So as mentioned earlier, you know, World War One, there was this threat that, you know, initially... France would be cut off from America and, you know, American designers would be able to come into their own. That did not happen, but that did happen during World War II. And World War II would mark this significant shift in the fate of the American designer, who despite having made significant progress throughout the 1930s, had largely continued to operate in the shadow of Parisian couture throughout that period. And suddenly during World War II, you know, the Germans invaded Paris. American designers were left to stand on their own. (laughs) The Germans were in Paris from June 1940 to August 1944. And many of the leading couture houses were forced to close. And those that did remain open did so under severely limited operations. Communication with America was broken at this point, leading fashion journalists for the New York Times to ask, Is New York prepared to become the style center now that the couture is no longer functioning? In short, the answer is yes, but then maybe a little bit no also. In 1941, after well-received fall and spring collections from American designers and manufacturers, the New York Times declared NYC as the fashion center of the world. And in 1943, Eleanor Lambert masterminded the first ever New York Press Week. This is something that kind of in some sort of way would go on to evolve and to become New York Fashion Week. And this was, of course, instrumental in supporting New York's emerging identity as a fashion capital. 
Fast forward 30 years later, when American ready-to-wear designers Halston, Stephen Burroughs, Oscar de la Renta, Anne Klein, and Bill Blass triumphed over the French haute couturiers at the legendary Battle of Versailles in 1973. And I would argue that this is the moment that America's reputation really separated itself from French design. America standing alone in its own light, celebrated in its own right on this international stage. So really its reputation is officially secured in this moment. And American designers had clearly found their voices in a sleek and sophisticated, playful display of modern design that stood in stark contrast to their French counterparts. And at this moment, what they had created was like made fussy and demode in the presence of what the American designers were presenting as this modern, fresh take on fashion. And the 1970s, after all, was the era that saw the rise of many American fashion designers and labels that remain familiar to us today. So Oscar de la Renta, Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, Donna Karen, Halston, to name a few. Fast forward almost 40 years to today, and we have an incredible roster of American fashion talent from Kirby Jean Raymond at Pierre Moss to Rodarte to Christopher John Rogers to Jeremy Scott, um, who does work in Paris, but he is American. He's from Missouri, just like me. So it's not really a coincidence that the Metropolitan Museum of Art decided to debut their new exhibition in America, a lexicon of fashion at the tail end of New York Fashion Week this past week in 2021. And the exhibit, like Fashion Week, is really a celebration of the history and continued ingenuity of American designers. Well, we've certainly come a long way since 1913 in terms of establishing a reputation for American fashion designers and specifically establishing New York City as a world fashion center. That's inarguable. The American fashion industry has worked tirelessly, as this episode attests to, for over a century to establish itself as a separate, albeit complementary, entity next to its European counterparts. Obviously, you know, Italy's emerged as a fashion center. There's all these fashion centers around the world. But the question question is this, and, and this is a question that April and I have been pondering since the Met Gala. <laughs> With the theme of this year's highly anticipated Met Gala, we've waited two years for this. Uh, the theme was American Independence, in line with, of course, the Met's new exhibition in America Lexicon of Fashion. So if this is the theme, this is the exhibit, why did so many of the world's most famous celebrities choose to wear European rather than American designers? Well, you better bet your bottom dollar that we have plenty of thoughts on this subject. So many that we're actually going to have to discuss it (laughs) as the subject of an entirely separate episode, which is coming your way on Thursday. So please join us in a couple days for our hot takes on this year's 2021 Met Gala. I think though, Cass, for right now, that does it for us today. May you consider the influence of American fashion designers in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we always love hearing from you. So please email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also always direct message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. You can also follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. If you have a moment and you'd like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we would very much appreciate your support. As always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. More Dressed on Thursday.
Dress the History of Fashion as a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.